Try unplugging your headphones. I feel like his headphone jack is messed up. <laughs> this should be the open. <laughs> All right. There we go. Am I back? You're back. This week on the Quarantine Quartet podcast, we're going to be talking about the government's largest stimulus bill ever passed. So let's get started. Welcome to the show now, Adam Oltmans. Hey, guys. Jeremy Thomas. Hello. And Pierce Conway. Hey. And then my name is Russell McBride. So we are going to start off our first podcast by jumping into the newly minted and signed government stimulus and discuss exactly how it's playing out and how it might play out in the future. We're also going to dive into some historical context, but first let's get an overview of how this topic fits into the week's news. Why don't you jump in there, Oldman? Yeah, so if you've been uh, paying attention to the news, and I don't know how you have not been, uh, but uh, surely you've heard about this um, trillion-dollar stimulus package that uh, the U.S. Congress has passed. The president signed it into law. Um, and, uh, of course, anything that's a trillion dollars is something significant and something to pay attention to. Uh, and it's especially notable given that we just found out the unemployment is at 3.3 million people in North Carolina. It's uh, over 300,000. Um, and so what we have there is we have all these people who otherwise had a job, uh, were able to pay their mortgage, pay their rent, um, and all of a sudden now they can't. Uh, and so this stimulus package is passed to kind of help out with that, help out small businesses. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today, um, and we're going to find out that this is not unusual in times of crisis. We have seen stimulus packages in 2008 and 2009. Obviously, the New Deal during the Great Depression comes to mind. Uh, so there is a historical precedent and context we can talk about as well. Uh, but this one, of course, is a huge package given how big the unemployment rate is, uh, how many people are affected by this, how uh, much it stalled the economy. So um, we'll hopefully be able to clear some of this up. Yeah, and I think, I think you've seen on the news just confusion about how exactly to cover this. People don't know where it fits into its context. Nothing has ever happened like this. They have a hard time comparing it to anything. So they kind of combine all these events to talk about it. But yeah, it's, it's particular to note that we are not just dealing with a uh, financial crisis, but we're also dealing with this pandemic. So it's these two things side by side that are kind of creating these unprecedented numbers. So Conway, why don't you give us an idea? What, what is the stimulus? Yeah, so we can break it down uh, into about five different categories. Um, the first one and the one that people are most excited about uh, would be direct relief in the form of stimulus checks. And what that looks like is that um, a $1,200 check per adult. Um, there are income limits as to uh, who can receive these checks. Um, if you make more than $75,000 per year, uh, then your check starts to get prorated. And if you make more than $100,000, you're not eligible for the stimulus check. Uh, but if you're looking at um, the typical household, um, two adults, uh, $1,200 per adult, and then a, an additional $500 per child. So a family of four, two adults, two children, uh, making under the income limits, I uh, would be looking at a check of $3,400, uh, which is a very significant amount of money. 
Um, the second part of the stimulus package would be an expansion of unemployment. Um, so this is usually handled at the state level, uh, but here the federal government would be stepping in and providing funding um, for 13 additional weeks of unemployment. And they would also be increasing uh, the weekly payments uh, for those that are unemployed. Uh, the third category uh, would be loans to small businesses. Um, so small businesses are the ones hit the hardest uh, in times of recession and depression. Um, and so the government is offering a significant uh, chunk of change uh, in the form of loans to small businesses if they don't lay off their employees. So what they're trying to do is protect employment in the future. Uh, and they're saying if a small business is willing to keep all of their employees, they're eligible um, to receive a loan. Uh, with favorable lending um, requirements in order to support the businesses through this really rough couple of months financially. Um, fourth part uh, would be loans to larger corporations. Um, and this would be with government oversight. The corporations would have to agree to follow certain restrictions that would be placed on the loan uh, in order to be eligible. And then the last part is support for hospitals. Uh, so we know that hospitals are under incredible strain resource-wise um, because of the number of people that, are, that need to be treated. Uh, and so this will provide direct relief uh, to hospitals. Yeah, thanks. I, I think those, those categories are really helpful. There's just so much going into this bill, but to have those kind of five direct ideas of exactly what's happening, that's helpful. Thanks for that, Conway. So and my next couple questions for you guys, and we can just have an open discussion about this one, but why do we have this bill? What do they want to get out of it? And even more pressing, maybe, why would the government even think about spending nearly $2 trillion on something like this? Yeah, so I'll jump in here really quick. And I think what Conway just said kind of lays the groundwork for what I'm about to say. And it pertains to unemployment. Um, and how the government's trying to help this state-funded and run program typically. So North Carolina, and Oltman said it at the beginning, North Carolina is over 300,000 uh, unemployed currently. So what's the difference between unemployed and being fired? If you are unemployed, you are laid off from your position because of something occurring. When I was in college, uh, I used to work landscaping, and I was seasonally unemployed every year when it came to the winter because I wasn't able to uh, work landscaping. There are partial unemployment. I know there are, there's a bunch of companies in the area um, taking, still trying to pay their employees, but requiring them to take a pay cut of a certain percentage. And all of this kind of goes into how do we help them survive? How do we help them pay their bills? How do we help them make their rent, um, pay the utility, and put food on the table for their kids. Uh, so when we're looking at this in North Carolina, we need this support to support over 300,000 who have filed um, in the last couple of weeks. And we're sure that there's gonna be plenty more that are gonna have to do that as well. Typically, there are about 3,000 claims a week in North Carolina. Um, and we just said in the last two weeks, there's been over 300,000. So it just shows you the perspective of the numbers. But again, it's an unprecedented time. So when we look at those numbers, it's really hard to gauge what is, you know, how do we even look at that number and, and take it in without being shocked by it and overcome by the, the sheer amount of people? Yeah, and I think the other thing that maybe our listeners should know is like anytime there's like a, a, a pause in the economy, it's, it's just absolutely devastating for, for businesses. 
I remember when 9-11 happened uh, and they grounded airplanes for like a week, it just had a devastating attack uh, effect on these, these airlines. Um, and so now we're going through this, this economic pause. I mean, literally shut down the economy, uh, at least a huge amount of uh, businesses in the economy. And, and that's going to have a really just a, a ripple effect and it's going to be pretty devastating. And so the government is trying to step in here to kind of soften that blow, not cure it, but soften it a little bit. So uh, one thing with the direct relief checks, a lot of people are excited to get money in the mail. Um, the idea is to help people, sustain people during this time period um, when there's increased stress financially, especially for those who are losing their jobs. But the hope is by giving them this money and that people will turn around and spend that money um, and inject it back into the economy. So it's like you're giving people money, they turn around and spend it, um, which will then support businesses, which will allow them to employ more people, which will help alleviate the strain on unemployment. So it's this cycle and hope that by providing this direct relief, it will turn around and benefit businesses and in turn benefit people uh, after that. I, I think uh, you've started to see, especially on Twitter, other social media, people uh, pronouncing themselves as heroes suddenly ordering takeout. So maybe it's this idea that if we're uh, injecting money into the market, uh, we're hopefully supporting local businesses who haven't been able to operate normally. And while I'm not a social media hero, per se, I can say that my wife and I have done that same thing, though. When we've thought about going out or grabbing food, we've thought about all the local small restaurants and places that we could buy from um, just to support them in any way. When we didn't even, I mean, we had food in the house to eat for dinner, we went out to eat to support a restaurant in our, our area. So Adam, why don't you give us an idea uh, about what the small business section of this, this bill looks like? Yeah, this is a, a really important um, thing that the government's doing here. Obviously, the direct payments, those are awesome uh, for those receiving that. Um, but uh, even that has a limited impact because you, know, you can't go out and necessarily spend that money right now anyway. Uh, but uh, the small business loan, what that's doing is it's allowing um, smaller businesses to keep their payrolls. Um, and uh, so I know somebody who's affected by this. And um, when, when all the economic stuff, the, the markets were crashing. Uh, the first thought for these small businesses is probably, well, who do I have to get rid of to stay afloat? We saw this in the Great Depression uh, when we're teaching about that in school, is that uh, one of the first things businesses do is try to, to um, dump payroll to try and stay afloat. And so what these small business loans uh, are going to allow people to do is these uh, companies that would otherwise have to lay people off and Jeremy talked about that. Um, what they're doing now is they're keeping those people on because the government is saying that uh, they'll more or less um, help you pay those salaries for three months. As long as you don't fire anybody, uh, then that loan will be forgiven too. That's the other big part of this is that it's a forgivable loan. There's no interest here. There's no strings attached. As long as you keep everyone employed, um, then the loan's forgiven. And so the small businesses helped out because they're getting help paying their employees. The employees, of course, are getting helped out. This is a, a form of direct relief to them because they don't have to file for unemployment. They can keep their paycheck and they can keep um, 
spending to help the economy go, whatever it is. So these small business loans are a really important aspect of the stimulus package. Yeah, it sounds like that's really going to support a lot of companies and individuals um, without putting more strain on the unemployment system. Yeah, absolutely. As teachers, we're in a pretty unique uh, situation in that we have a lot of job security that is not the norm during this time. Most Americans are worried about uh, losing their jobs, um, some to more extent than others. But as teachers, like we are insulated from that a little bit. Um, knowing that there's a very high likelihood our, our jobs are still going to be there um, because the need for education uh, will dictate that we'll be employed. Uh, but we're in a unique scenario that's not common for everyone else. Yeah, but that's why I decided to teach anyway. Can't lose my job, suckers. <laughs> you know, not to, not to throw a wrench in your plans, Conway, or cause anxiety. But it is interesting. You hear some economists talk about the idea of suddenly local governments, counties and states, they're spending tons of money on the fight against the coronavirus, money that they've never spent before, money they potentially don't have. And you see a little bit of government money coming to these states and these local governments from this stimulus bill. But a lot of economists and a lot of uh, uh, senators and congressmen, they're going to say states need more money. The interesting reason being next year when we go to pass a new budget for education, uh, if the states are lacking some money, education tends to get cut sometimes. So there's a chance that that you could see more layoffs. I think it was 2007, 2008, Orange County in California laid off thousands of teachers uh, because of that same idea. Their local government lost money, so they just cut the teachers and, and teachers and up the class size. So uh, you've heard a lot of people say this is something that that they've learned from, and we're hoping that same thing doesn't happen. Uh, but just something to keep in mind moving forward as we're considering, okay, what's the government doing to support local economies um, as the the governments are spending money they haven't spent? Well, I hope I didn't just jinx us. I hope we all still have jobs next year when the budget's passed. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the wet blanket, Russell. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome, y'all. Uh, do we want to talk about how are the governments paying for this? Yeah, so that's a great question, Adam. I, I think the U.S. debt now is at nearly $23 trillion. So here's my question to you guys. Does that, does that number even matter anymore? What, what does that number even look like? Uh, and what do we need to know about that? How are we going to pay for it? Well, I think the simple answer is uh, we can't pay for it. <laughs> and does that number matter, $23 tr trillion and rising? It does. Um, I'm not an economist, though, so I can't really speak to that. But it is, it's just more deficit spending, uh, which we're already doing. But this could have some negative implications on, on our credit rating, uh, on uh, what we're able to do in the future. Um, like you already mentioned, they can cut from education programs, uh, that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Does anyone else have any idea on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've heard some people talk about just the idea that that our national debt really is kind of passing our problems to future generations, um, that we're spending the money now to, to kind of help where we are at, but really we're passing the problem to future generations because they're, they're eventually going to have to deal with that number. Someone at some point is going to have to deal with $23 trillion and counting. Yeah, I think the way I think about it is when, when students or people ask about the debt, you know, and, and we know it's at $23 trillion. My, my, my answer to that usually is, well, do you think that someone would buy the United States for $23 trillion? And I think, yeah, someone would. But the problem is 
eventually we're going to reach that number where people are saying, well, the United States isn't even worth that much. Um, and I think that's where we're going to have a problem is that uh, we've spent so much out of our deficit that uh, people are realizing that uh, we can't really back that up. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. It's an interesting thought. So, I mean, we've made a little turn for, uh, uh, for the depressing side of this bill, but let's think about uh, this bill is in the middle of a crisis. In general, do you guys think this bill and this crisis could lead to some long-term change? Specifically thinking about change that was brought about by the New Deal and the Great Depression, what are some things that could potentially come out of this time period? I'll hop in on this one. Uh, I think the area that we might see the most long-term change uh, would be in the healthcare system. Um, we have seen a tremendous strain put on hospitals and on healthcare providers. Um, the demand of having an influx of patients due to this um, novel coronavirus uh, is something that hospitals in New York City have been unable to keep up with. Um, they just, uh, I think it was, it was a U.S. Navy, um, had a medical hospital ship um, that just arrived in New York City uh, offering a thousand beds, uh, but we're currently projected to need more hospital beds than we actually have in the United States. Um, we're still probably a couple of weeks away from that point, so we have time to prepare, but the need is greatly outpacing the demand. Um, so I think a lot of people are recognize this and the like doctors and nurses and everyone else uh, working in hospitals are on the front lines, working extremely long hours while the rest of us kind of sit at home, uh, which is uh, a crazy concept because uh, I've been safely in my house for the last two weeks now while other doctors and nurses have been working 12 hour shifts every day. Um, so I think some sort of protection for the healthcare industry uh, in like a greater stockpiling of resources um, so that there wouldn't be a shortage of masks like we're seeing right now and other personal protective equipment. Um, so a greater stockpile of resources and then um, potentially investing and expanding the number of doctors and nurses so that they're not put under such a big strain. Um, those are two areas in healthcare that I could see long-term change coming about. It's hard to, to know right now uh, exactly what long-term change will happen, but those are the areas of greatest need uh, that we're seeing that will probably be addressed uh, as the crisis goes on. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think even short-term, we're going to see exactly what you're talking about as a lot of um, medical professionals are saying we're going to see a second, third, potentially fourth, fourth wave of this virus. And in the second one, we might not have a vaccine yet. So they're going to start building up those supplies, getting opportunities to open up more beds for the second wave, et cetera. So I, I definitely think we'll see it short term, but interesting thought for long term as well. Well, yeah, and I think that the other thing is, I mean, the government is, uh, I mean, think about how much power they have that they're. Um, and again, I know it's not mandated that uh, you stay in your home, but they're already kind of using these these powers uh, to try and manage um, the spread of this virus. And and like you said, you have these other waves that are coming and they're going to have to to manage it again. And so I think there's all sorts of questions to, to, to think about. And that's, you know, the government's role in in shutting down travel, uh, the government's role uh, in sanitation, uh, uh, sanitation measures that, that every businesses have to take. So uh, there's a whole bunch of things I think that, uh, are going to 
come back to what is the role of government and how much power should they have? Yeah, Oatman's, what you just said about interstate travel um, is one of the things that's shocking to me. Um, and it, it's the, what is the role of the government there? But you hear of people in these states being hit hard in New York City, leaving New York City in an effort to get out um, with understanding of possibly like if I was in that position of why I would want to. Um, but with without the ability until they shut, uh, I believe in Saturday it was, they shut down the, the borders trying to keep people from traveling in and out of the tri-state area there. Um, people were still able to move about, and that's not going to do anything but help spread this coronavirus at an expedient rate um, and really, really put us in a bind, and the government hasn't really had the ability to do too much about that. So if we draw the comparisons to the, the New Deal, um, which was driven by relief, recovery, and reform, um, and that happened in, in different stages. Right now we're in, like, the crisis time, and so we're focused on immediate direct relief and like a little shorter term recovery. How can we get through the next two weeks at this point is what we're looking at. Um, it's really a week by week, maybe month by month basis right now that the government's working with. Uh, as we emerge on the other side of the crisis, that's when we're really gonna start looking at um, the reform. How can we help this from happening again? Um, and how can we be ready when it does happen? So let, let's move in a different direction. I have an in interesting question for all of you. So if there's one person that seems to be shining brightly in all of this um, with his uh, limitless followers, it would sing, it, it would be Andrew Yang and the Yang Gang 2020. So people out there are, are claiming that Yang was first, that he called it. You even have some some Bernie bros jumping in on this, taking the claim uh, about what's going on right now. So why is this stimulus different than what Andrew Yang was saying? Um, or is it even different? Yeah, so first off, McBride, I would like to give you a quick shout out. Um, just over a year ago, when Yang was pulling about 20th amongst Democratic nominees, you were on board with his ideas and you thought that he would be able to make a push in some parts of our country. Um, and lo and behold, he did that. He made a, quite the run in this last, uh, it, to the final six or seven um, of the Democratic nominees. So Yang wanted uh, what was called the freedom dividend, the universal basic income, um, because he was worried about job loss. Now, the job loss we're experiencing from the coronavirus is drastically different than the job loss he was predicting. His job loss is predicted on automation, which are machines, computers, all these different things doing the jobs of humans. Um, and we, we already kind of see that in some places, like if you go to a Sheets or a McDonald's, um, you might be able to order off a screen rather than having to talk to somebody. Um, and it's, it's that kind of small, but he sees it growing to the point um, that in his prediction, his campaign's prediction was in 12 years, one in three Americans will be at risk of losing a job um, that came along with this. So he wanted to take uh, trillions of dollars through the people who produce and sell goods through what is called a VAT tax. Um, he wanted to take a few trillion dollars, similar to our stimulus bill now, um, and pay out $1,000 to each adult um, in a monthly payment called this freedom dividend. Uh, the, I, the, the huge difference as you think about Andrew Yang and what his, his beliefs and ideas are and 
in, in the future, maybe this is where we go as a country. I can't say for sure. Um, he's projecting out a lot farther than I can think as a person. Um, but this, his crisis and our crisis is drastically different. Um, yes, we are getting this $1,200 check that Conway talked about and $500 per kid. Um, but the goal is it's a one-time amount. It's a one-time check. We don't have to do this again. Hopefully we can be prepared as Oatman's and Conway were just kind of talking about, uh, prepare ourselves that we don't have to worry about this happening again. Um, and then there necessarily won't be a need for that freedom dividend that Yang is talking about. Now, if down the road, that could all change. But at this point, I don't really see that much of a similarity except for the amount of money. Now, when you look at the amount of money, um, it makes people immediately jump on and say, look at this, Andrew Yang, he's doing his thing. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's, it's easy to look at the surface level and say, okay, this is different. But it is interesting to consider if we think about society right now and the direction we're moving, suddenly tons of companies are working remotely. Um, companies like Amazon are catching flack for potentially dangers they're putting their workers in for having to continue working. You have other companies uh, like McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and, and uh, Burger King. They're figuring out ways to do orders digitally. They're figuring out ways to limit human contact. Do you guys think that this coronavirus could potentially speed up this prediction yang had that in 12 years one in three americans would be at risk of losing their job do you think these new measures of social distancing some of them could actually remain permanent and more americans might not get their jobs back at the end of this because of these social distancing measures yeah i i'm I'm not a a big believer in that i think that obviously there's going to be some changes in how we do things i I think that we got to be realistic that this is going to change how business is done, but I don't see it in the way that Yang's talking about. I, first of all, we're programmed, we're hardwired as human beings for contact and social contact. As teachers, uh, can we teach online remotely? Yeah, and we are, but we also know that there's value in us being in the classroom with those students. I think everyone is realizing that. So I think this idea that everything's going to be automated or people are going to lose their jobs for that. There's probably going to be a little bit of that, but I think that in this moment, maybe what we're learning is how valuable human contact is and relationships are and that you can't really replace that. Um, and so I'm on that, that team that says, sure, there's going to be changes, but uh, I'm not on the Yang gang. Sorry, Russell. No, no, I, I love that thought. I love the idea that withdrawing people from each other and almost testing out this idea is actually going to lead people to believe we need to fight for the opposite, that we need more human interaction. Yeah. And I'm an introvert. So I'm actually having the time of my life right now, but there is a point. (laughs) Yeah. There is a point where I was like, but I I do, I need, I need to be amongst people. I need to be with people. Even when I, like I've told my class this before, I do not like going through drive-thrus. I hate it. Um, there's something eerie about it to me about speaking into a, a box. Uh, and so I think that that, that I'm not alone. And I think that, uh, that, uh, we're not going to see this dystopian world where we all are just like black mirror, you know? So just a public service announcement then, since Adam is bringing it up, if you would go ahead and text your extroverted friends, just check on them, make sure they're good. Maybe even pick up the phone, give them a phone call, make sure everyone's doing okay. Yeah, but they'll talk to you for like 20 minutes via text because they're so needy. So be careful. 
It's a dangerous world for Adam trying to call people. <laughs> Can't stand it. <laughs> okay, so since we're all history teachers here, I think we would be remiss if we didn't look a little more in-depth about the historical context here. So what else have we seen in history that's like this, uh, and did it work? And I know we mentioned the New Deal, but I know there's a few other things. So 2008-2009, I had just gotten married in 2009, actually. And uh, I remember we received a a stimulus check for a few hundred dollars uh, from the government. That was from George Bush's administration, because he was president still in 2008. Um, And in 2009, President Obama and his administration, they got creative with tax rebates. I remember they um, basically they they gave first time home buyers uh, $8,000 uh, if they bought a house uh, that year. And so we actually took advantage of that. And so there's some mixed reviews on that one. Like I said, in 2008, we received our few hundred dollars and we saved it, which is not what they want us to do. Um, but in when we got that $8,000 check for buying a new home, well, yeah, we went and we bought, you know, maybe it was a new TV or maybe new furniture. So a lot of people say that 2009 was uh, a stimulus with mixed reviews, but for the most part did kind of help jumpstart the economy again. You know, it's interesting to hear, like you hear politicians talking about the, that stimulus as a bailout for big businesses, a bailout for big banks, et cetera. So it's interesting to see uh, as you kind of relay your memories of that, you relay getting helped individually. But so many senators and congressmen painted this bill as something that needed to be different, that needed to give way more support to. Yeah, you can see that in the final bill. Um, The there are much more restrictions and government oversight of these loans that are going out to big businesses. Um, So one of the criticisms was that there was not enough oversight and that um, it was unclear exactly where all the money was going to, where the loans were being provided. Uh, So they're are measures in place to try and ease the fears that um, this will be abused by those big corporations and that the average American will never see the benefits from the money going to the corporations. So I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us and specifically thank you to Oldman's. Hey. Conway. And Thomas. Have a good one. So we will see you guys next week on the Quarantine Quartet Podcast. That's a wrap.